Today we're going to be back in Peter's sermon in Acts 2, but I have to get something off my chest first. Peas. Does anybody here like peas? Do you? When I was a kid, I hated peas. And hate is, is probably not a strong enough word. I had a very stubborn father, and I am a very stubborn person. That created this conflict at the dinner table when peas were served. Because my dad was old school, and if it was on your plate, it was going down your throat before you left the table. And I wasn't eating those peas. And he and I would have some serious standoffs. Because I didn't even serve them. It was completely unfair. My mom put them there, and he said I had to eat them, and that's just not right. And I'm going to sue him one day. But until that time, it was horrible. But I would dig in my heels. I wasn't touching those peas, and he wasn't giving in. I wasn't leaving the table till I ate those peas. And weeknights were fine. I had school the next morning. If he wanted to go 12 hours at the table, I could go with him because I knew school was coming. But Fridays were awful because you had Friday night, Saturday, Saturday night, Sunday, Sunday night, all before you could potentially leave the table. Those were scary nights when peas were served. And there would be standoffs, and it was horrible. And, and I just have this, this horrible feeling towards peas because of my childhood. Well, then I got married. And I remember a couple days after we were married, my wife put peas on the plate. And I'm thinking, what the heck is wrong with her? Now, I knew she wasn't going to keep me at the table, because that, that wasn't happening anymore. But I thought, what is wrong? Why are you serving peas? And she says, peas are great. I said, I can't stand them. She said, try a bite. So I was married. I tried a bite. I was newly married. They weren't that bad. And what I came to find after all these years, Laura discovered it for me, my mom served these canned peas, which were, you would starve to death in a bomb shelter if you had these. You wouldn't eat them. They were horrendous. But Laura served fresh peas. They were actually quite good. So I actually now can stand peas. I don't make my kids eat all of them because they might end up like me if I did that. But I just want to get that off my chest and then we'll talk about Acts 2. Or maybe there's something to do with Acts 2 there. Maybe there is. Today I want to talk about peas. I want to talk about the unforgettable peas. And I am not going to talk anymore about the kinds you eat, but I am going to talk about four peas that make life a joy when properly understood and can be detrimental to our lives if not properly understood. So we're going to look at four peas today as we look at the second point of Peter's sermon. That's two of them, point and Peter. I only have two to go, right? Remember in Acts 2 we have the first Christian sermon. We have Peter standing up. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit has come. We have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We have the filling of the Holy Spirit. The multitudes come. What was that sound of wind? What's going on? Why are these people speaking in foreign languages? Peter stands up. He says, let me explain. And he goes through Joel. Joel 2. Today, he's going to explain the next part. He's going to talk about who Jesus is as he goes into the Psalms. And next week, the last part, he'll talk about what Jesus is up to. So we're in the middle point of Peter's sermon. We're going to be looking at this, well, let's just do it this way. Let's get into the text. Rather than me explain to you what's going on, let's hear what God has to say. Before we do, let's pray. Father, I pray that you would uh, give us ears to hear and minds to understand, that you would, Holy Spirit, teach us from your word today, that you would speak through me, that you would quiet my mind and, and keep my words in, and speak to me and through me for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm in Acts 2, verse 22, and it reads, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus 
delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he therefore... I'm sorry, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Stop there. As I'm looking at this, I saw four Ps. I saw proven, planned, panged, and promised. I'll go through those for you. That's why you have a P on your sheet. The first one is proven. Now, you and I have a pretty incredible God that we serve. Look at what Peter does. He, he's speaking to these people. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. Now, when we hear Jesus of Nazareth, we think, yeah, what's wrong with that? Well, Nazareth was a derisive term. It was not a compliment. You remember one of the disciples said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It was a, a slanderous term. People used to say, oh, Jesus of Nazareth. Can't be anything. He's from Nazareth. That's backwoods, good for nothing. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Peter stands up and says, This Jesus of Nazareth, the one you mocked, that you thought was nothing, he says, He was a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Jesus was a man attested. Do you know what attested means? It means certified, proven, demonstrated. You know, we use the word faith and belief in our culture. Oh, well, I believe in Jesus, and I believe in the tooth fairy, and I believe the eagles will win today. You know, that, that hopeless <laughs> faith, I jest. That's not biblical belief. Biblical belief is a certainty that a man was fully God, who was Jesus, and it was attested, it was certified, proven, demonstrated by God in our midst. So Peter's saying, that guy Jesus of Nazareth, the one that you died, that you killed, God showed beyond any shadow of a doubt. God proved, God certified that he is the Messiah. A man who was God. And he did it in your midst. Now stop and think about what that means. God could have just said, here's what you have to do, do it, or die. And that's it. It would have worked. God can do whatever he wants. But God said, I'm going to send the Christ into history in an examinable way, in the midst of the people, doing signs and wonders and mighty works, so that it can't be missed or denied on any type of intellectual level. It is a historical examinable, verifiable faith that we have. All that had to happen here was someone to stand up and say, Peter, 
Yeah, he was in our midst, but those miracles he did, they didn't happen. I was in Cana. Remember Cana? At that wedding? And that wine? It wasn't wine at all. It was just water. All someone had to do was stand up and say that. No, no, no. That lame man who he healed that walked? No, 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 no. That was a joke. That guy wasn't really lame. I'd seen him before. And, and he didn't rise from the dead. I'll show you where the body is. Come on, everybody. I'll pull the body. Think of all the miracles God did in the midst of these people. Water to wine. Dead people back to life. Bleeding people healed. Sick people restored. Blind people seeing. Right? Lame people walking. Multitudes being fed twice. Walking on water. Demons coming out. All these things right in their myth. Why? Because God graciously wanted to give people the opportunity to see and know for sure that Jesus was who he claimed to be. There is no other religion in this world that has that. John Smith went out into the woods and found some special glasses and red plates. Who the heck went with him? And how can we trust him? Such and such a prophet did all these wonderful works, but nobody ever saw him with their own eyes. Other people, they believe the earth talks to them. Well, I never heard the earth speaking to me. Other people believe that they're gods, and I can attest that I'm no god, nor are they. But Jesus lived in history, and he, he lived in a way that was examinable and verifiable and provable to claim that he was God incarnate, God in the flesh. That's what Peter is saying. You ever come across someone that says, I don't believe in miracles? That used to be me. You know what? They'll tell you it's intellectual suicide to believe in miracles. There is no way that God parted the Red Sea and the Israelites walked through and the, and the Egyptians died. And that's just crazy. You have to be a lunatic to believe that. You know what the reality is? It's the other way around. Because what they're claiming is that God, if he exists, certainly couldn't do that. There's no way it happened. I don't believe in miracles. That's intellectual suicide. The, the, uh, the Jewish priests, do you think they didn't believe Jesus rose from the dead? Or they didn't want to acknowledge Jesus rose from the dead? When the people came and said, the body's gone. Did they say, well, there's no way he could have risen from the dead. It's not possible. It's ridiculous. Don't worry about it. Or did they say, let's make up a story to make sure no one believes that. Right? Did the Jews really go through a parted sea? Is that so hard to believe, or is it harder to believe the finest fighting force of the time drowned on a sandbar in six inches of water? Really? God, God blew the water apart on a sandbar, people tell me all the time, and, and they walked across on what was theoretically dry ground. Yeah, but then had the Egyptians all drowned in that six inches of, of sandbar. Doesn't that sound a little bit of silly? God created the heavens and the earth and everything that dwells in them. That's Genesis, right? People tell me, I don't believe that. I believe that everything just came from nothing, out of nothing. Really? We can sit and watch if, a, if something morphs into something. I remember hearing a, a young child once tell me in an evolutionary biology lesson, I thought if whales came up on the beach, they died. They don't turn into elephants, do they? Now, obviously, they're making a bit of a joke on it, but which is easier to believe, that God created a whale and an elephant? That's miraculous. Or that over eons, whales came out of the water, breathed air, and walked? And became, I mean, come on now. Yes, I'm making light of it a little bit, but you understand, God graciously chose to reveal himself in a knowable, verifiable, examinable way. Our claim is that Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead three days later. Paul says, if that's not true, we among all people are most to be pitied. I wish people would at least pity me if they don't believe it. 
But the reality is he rose, and it's proven, and Peter's saying right here, it's a proven faith. This Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. When we go out and share our faith and defend our faith, understand the benefit of defending certainty and truth over a lie. It's not that hard. Not that hard at all. I don't believe Jesus is the only way to heaven. Okay. But what's true? Is he or isn't he? Why don't you believe that he's the only way to heaven? Ask that question and watch what happens. Peter's saying, guys, it happened in your midst. You know what happened. And check this out. Now here we're going to stretch our brains a little bit. You ready? This this is going to just seem really weird to you. Or maybe not. Maybe I'll just seem weird. In verse 23 he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You ever see The Passion of the Christ? Can I tell you I hated that movie? Doesn't that sound weird coming from a pastor? You know why I hated that movie? Genesis to Revelation, boom, you get just the passion narrative. And it's subtitled. I have a problem with subtitles. That's not, that's not a biblical thing. That's a, you have to read a movie. Give me the book, all right? Put pictures in the book. I'll read the book. But anyway, I thought it was a great cinematic production. I remember watching this movie and watching Jesus be beaten and flogged and bloodied, and there's a scene where they lift him up on the cross, and he's like gasping for air, and you're realizing the pain he went through. And I remember feeling sympathy for him and pity for him, like, oh my gosh, how could they do this to him? How could they they do this to an innocent person? And then I thought, what wickedly nasty, horrible theology. They didn't do it to him. You know, Jesus didn't get beaten up. He didn't get nailed to the cross because he couldn't stop it. He got nailed to the cross because that's exactly where he wanted to be. You understand that? It says right here, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Before God, here goes the stretch, not of theology of our minds. Before God created anything, he knew Jesus would die on the cross on that specific day. When a tree was put in the earth or a seed fell into the earth, God knew that that particular one would be milled into a cross that he himself would hang on before anybody had any idea what was going on. This was planned. It was predetermined. Do you understand that? God is all-powerful and all-knowing. All-knowing doesn't mean he can pass a history test because he remembers it. All-knowing means, yes, he could pass the history test and he could pass the current events test and he can pass the future events test because he knows exactly what's going to happen. Who's going to win the presidential election? God knows. Doesn't he? Would you disagree with me that God already knows? So do you have to vote? Does it really matter if God already knows? Absolutely you have to vote. Absolutely it matters. But God's not sitting there going, Oh, I wonder how it's going to go down. Let me check the polling. What's going on? Angels, go get me polls. Go look into people's hearts and tell me what they're thinking. Angels can't do that. Oh my gosh, this is going to be a close one. God says, I, okay, if Obama wins, I'll do this. If Romney wins, I'll do this. No. God already knows. Your vote matters. God already knows because he knows all things. It's all part of his perfect plan. Do you understand that? Judas then maybe wasn't guilty because it was going to happen anyway. What is it? No, 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 no. Stop. We've gone too far. Judas was guilty and responsible for the decision he made in the betrayal. The Jews, he's killed, killed Christ through these lawless men. Yes, they really did. But God didn't react. God knew. It was perfectly planned, just like your life and my life and everyone's life. You know, you guys know Joe, Seth. We, we call as Jews, I can call him Joe. Joseph had these brothers. You know his story. Joseph was the 
arrogant second to youngest child who had these dreams along the lines of, hey, y'all are going to bow down to me and I'm going to be in charge of all of you. Woohoo! And daddy loves me the most. They didn't like him very much. So one day they were out and he came to them and they oh, threw him in the cistern and they were going to kill him, but they decided they'd just be nice and sell him into slavery. So he went in slavery, and then Potiphar bought him, and Potiphar's wife had the hots for him, and he ended up in Potiphar's jail, and then in the jail, he interpreted some dreams for a baker and a cupbearer, and then they forgot about him, so he stayed in the jail, and one day Pharaoh had a dream, and the living member of the dream interpretation committee said, oh, wait, 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 Joe in the jail, call him, and he interpreted, and he became the prime minister of Egypt, and he saved the known world through a famine. His brothers came back one day, hungry. Our daddy sent us here to get grain. We're going to starve. And Joseph knew who they were, but they didn't know who he was. The beard would have been gone. He's many years older. He spoke through an interpreter to these guys. And do you remember what happened one day when they found out who he was and he let them know who he was? Do you remember what Joseph said? If not, the good news is God recorded it for us in Genesis 45. Check this out. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said to them, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. You did it. God was in control of it. You understand that? His brothers were guilty of a wicked sin of selling their brother and lying to their father. And frankly, not caring. But that was not outside of God's control. That's a little hard to comprehend, isn't it? You and I, to a degree, are responsible for the death of Christ. Pilate is responsible for the death of Christ. Judas is responsible for the death of Christ. The Jewish officials are responsible for the death of Christ. But ultimately, who's most responsible for the death of Christ? God himself, because he chose to die. Don't ever watch the Passion of the Christ and go, oh, I feel so bad for him. Oh, no, you've missed the whole point. That's what I didn't understand about it. Churches would be giving away free tickets to take somebody to see Passion of the Christ. So you get to watch Jesus get whooped and stuck on a cross. You don't even know who the man is on the cross. That is God in the flesh who is on that cross, delighting, look at Hebrews, delighting in the fact that he is on that cross because he knows why he is on that cross to pay the sin for all of us. He chose to be there. It was planned perfectly and predetermined by the foreknowledge of God. So what do you do with that? Look at your life. Lovely economy. Do you think God's like, oh shoot, this is worse than I thought it was. And the government didn't do what I wanted to do to bail us out. It's all going apart and I got all these people I got to help. Really? Really? God knows what he's doing. Something comes along in your life, you don't understand what's going on. It's kind of like, oh my gosh, I forgot to watch what was going on with them. What do we do? No. It's perfectly in his control. God uses all things for the good of those who love Him. Oh, you have responsibility, and oh, you have real decisions to make, and there are real consequences for your decisions. But don't forget for a moment that God is fully in control of all things. This Jesus who was attested by God to be the Christ and was killed by people didn't end up on the cross because you nailed Him there. He ended up on the cross because He chose to go there. And if He loves you that much, do you really think He forgot about you after? So... We got proven, we got planned, we got panged. You want a Greek word? Odin. Just throw a Greek word out every once in a while as a pastor. It makes people think you know what you're talking about. Who's going to check if Odin's really the Greek word, right? Now someone's going to go check. It is a word. Odin is a word for panged. We get into this here. 
God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death. You know what pangs are? Birth pains. It occurs just a few times in Scripture here. It refers to birth pangs. You ever see a, you ever see, maybe you've been, a lady with birth pains? I've never been one. I've seen it happen. When those things come on, you know something's coming out, right? Now, yes, we have corruptions enter the world, and unfortunately, sometimes pregnancies don't end as well as we would like. However, in most cases, when the birth pang set in, you get to the hospital because there is nothing you can do to stop something from coming out at some point. And they're not comfortable, they're not fun, but something's a-coming. When Jesus went in the womb, the birth pang started because something was coming out of that, that tomb. The tomb was like a womb. Death couldn't hold Christ down. The wages of sin are death, right? Jesus never sinned. He took the wages of death, sin, upon himself so that we could have the wages of righteousness, which is eternal life. The pangs of death couldn't hold Jesus down, Peter's saying here, because he was free from sin and he would be raised from the dead so that we might have eternal life as we believe. Now put these three P's together. Proven, planned, panged, and you got yourself one wild promise. Check this out. I think this is so cool. So if you don't, you got problems. Get into the Psalms here. Psalm 16, verse 8 through 11 is what Peter quotes. For David says concerning him, him being Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me. For he's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will not will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Who wrote this psalm? David? Did he die? So what's he talking about? You're not going to let your Holy One see corruption? Did David die? Come on now, you got to be with me here. Yeah? Did David die? Yes. No, David's the third person that never died. He just walked with God. Yes, he died. In fact... His tomb was a place that people would go to there. Everyone knew where David was buried. So Peter says, David wrote in Psalm 16, verse 8. He wouldn't say that, verse 8. That wasn't there yet. But he said, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And now Peter does some exegesis for him. He explains what's going on there. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he did both die and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, though, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would, not, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. So he's saying this psalm was about Jesus saying that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. This is a first-person psalm. God, through David, spoke of the Christ. Listen to what he's saying here. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. That's Jesus' life, living with focus on God, the Father, at all times. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. Look at Hebrews 1. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He was able to rejoice in where he was going and the cup that he would drink and what he did. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One 
see corruption? Jesus never had that happen, did he? He never saw corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. But I said there's a promise for us. Now check this out. Through the proven, promised, panged work of Christ, does this psalm not apply to us directly as Christians? It says, I saw the Lord always before me, for He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Is God not always before us? Does God not dwell in us? At the right hand is a, is a symbolic expression meaning to take care or protect us. Is God not always clearly visible to us through Christ as followers? Does God not dwell in us as followers of Christ? Does God not care for us perfectly? It says, therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh will dwell in hope. Is that not what we are given through Christ? It goes on to say, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. What happens when you die? Yeah, this, this perishable body goes away, but what happens when you die? Are you abandoned to Hades? Or are you immediately in the presence of God? Do you receive a resurrected body at some point, or do you just perish in the dirt? You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Isn't that why Jesus came? That they may know God and have eternal life? That they may know the paths of life so that you may be full of gladness in the presence of God? Isn't that eternal life? To know God and dwell with Him forever? This is crazy, isn't it? We have a proven, all-powerful Creator, Redeemer, and Sustainer who entered into history and allowed us to examine who he was to see that he is really who he says he is. Who death could not hold down because he dwelt in perfection. And he took his righteousness and imputed it or put it upon us as he took our sin upon himself in our place. That's crazy. So what do you do with all this? Well, I've come to discover that this Christian walk, this maturing in our faith, this building ourselves up as a church is, in God's perfect providence, a long and at times arduous process. Imagine a giant brick edifice. You know how you build those things? One brick at a time. Boom. 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 And they can take years and years and years to build. Here's a brick. Four of them. Boom. Proven. Boom. Promised. Boom. Pangs. Boom. Promised is the last one. Predicted. You take these four bricks and you add them to the edifice God is building of us and in us and through us. And you let them set firmly. The first thing you do is you trust in God confidently. You can't give me and I can't give you one good reason to not trust in God in all circumstances. Why would you not? Number two, you keep your eyes on God fully and completely. We often believe these lies, yeah, 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 God, but the fun is over here. Here's where the party is. Here's where the joy is to be had. Here's where my life finds meaning. No, because you just stop trusting Him. This is life, to know God and dwell with Him forever. But God, I'm giving up all the fun. You're giving up nothing fun. You're giving up a cheap imitation of joy for the real deal. But you've got to trust Him and walk in obedience with Him. Because God doesn't exist to entertain you. God doesn't put on an outfit and dance around and make you smile. He's, he's a serious God, with a serious love for you, who wants a serious joy to be had by you. But it begins with trust. So you trust. You keep your eyes on Him. You know that He protects you perfectly. 
So no matter what is going on around you, don't allow the circumstances to freak you out. When Jesus went up on that cross, the disciples freaked out. Ah! Some will run around stark naked. Read the Bible closely. That's called really freaking out. When Joseph was abandoned in prison, he could have freaked out. He didn't. Remember Elijah? Ravens are feeding him. The widow's out of food. Did he freak out? Widow's son? No. No matter what's going on, God is perfectly in control. He has planned it for the good of those who love him. He has planned it to reveal himself to those who don't love him. And we can confidently smile and trust that God knows what he's doing. I don't, and that's okay for me. And when you put all those together, which are really easy on an intellectual level, but a little bit harder in case you don't know, practically speaking, it's really easy to trust God when everything goes just how you like. But when things don't go quite exactly how you like, it's a little harder. Well, trust in God with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him and He'll make straight your paths. Skip back up. He's not testing you to make sure that you can make it into heaven. You love Him, you're in. He's not going to give you more than you can handle. He'll give you a lot more than you can handle on your own. But not with him as it's intended. And with all of that, we do what Peter did. What did Peter do? He stood up at the risk of his very own life. And he declared to a lost and wicked and evil generation who had killed the Christ, who would try to kill him, as we continue through the book of Acts, who would ultimately succeed in killing him, he stood up and said, Hey, This Jesus, who you killed, basically, he died for you. He died so that you could have this promise of Psalm 16. He died so that you could have eternal life. He died so that you could be forgiven. And the reason he declared this was because he had received it and understood he did not deserve it and understood what Christ had entrusted to him. So what do we do? I think we spend some time just chewing on it this week. We prayerfully ask God to reveal to us areas where we're not trusting Him fully. And then take that baby step of trust. We ask God to reveal to us what's distracting us from keeping our eyes on Him fully. Because there's a lot of stuff out there that can distract you from God. Anybody here busy? It's not necessarily bad to be busy, but it's bad at times to be busy to the point of distraction. I have a little box in my house. For me, it's highly distracting. Sometimes I need to turn off that box. I have this little thing in my pocket that accesses the entire world. And Temple Runner and Angry Birds and the Internet and Facebook and music and podcasts. Sometimes I can actually turn it off and walk away from it for a couple minutes. And then when the shakes get bad, I come back to the phone. But we need to ask God, God, what is standing in the way? What is distracting me? Or what is insulating me from keeping my eyes on you, from trusting in you? And then be careful because hell lets you know. We need to ask God to remind us that He protects us perfectly. And no matter what's going on, to trust that He knows what He's doing. Don't allow discouragement to drive you. Don't allow euphoria to drive you. Allow the Lord to drive you, because He knows what He is doing. Joseph didn't need to plan an escape from prison. Peter didn't need to save Jesus. God had it. That doesn't mean that you just sit there and say, Oh, God will do what He's going to (laughs) do. Let's all just sit here and whatever God has predetermined is going to happen. See, the problem with that is God knew that you were going to go lazy and do nothing. Be responsible with what you have, what you've been entrusted with. 
But then as we live this way more and more, and I know for sure that, that you guys, just like me, are starting to feel this more and more. When you first come to faith, it's like, oh my gosh, I'm supposed to tell other people about this? I don't want to do that. It's freaky. It makes me uncomfortable. Oh! But then little by little, you get this little inkling in you. They're like, you know, I actually kind of want to tell some people about this. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't want to do it, but I want to tell them. But, 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 but. And you keep going. A little bit more, day by day, and you'll finally get to this point where Peter was. And you just stand up and let her rip. You know why? Because this is life. We have it. They can have it. If they will just believe. And they say, but it's too hard to believe. How can you believe in just some fairy tale? There's no fairy tale. Look, it's proven. Verifiable. It's examinable. And God loves you. Yeah, but you... Now here's the hard part. Your life doesn't look like you believe in that stuff. You're right, because I'm messed up too. But I'm trying. And it's not about how well you do it. It's about what has been done for you. Now as they examine you little by little and you're mature and they see a difference. But you don't have to be ready to like, you're 40 years in the faith, you've written three books, and people pay a fortune to have you tell them how to grow in your faith before you can share it. You can start on day one. Because it's not you who's doing the work, it's God who's working through you. And that joy and excitement and passion you feel, that's the junk being removed and the Holy Spirit dwelling more fully within you. That's what happened to Peter. He had a God-ordained crowd come in by a God-ordained work at the perfectly planned time when he stood up and God spoke through him as he was perfectly prepared. That's what we're called to do too. 3,000 people came to faith through Christ. Through, well, yes, through Peter. God did the work. Common, ordinary, Galilean fisherman Peter. As we go through the rest of the book of Acts, watch how God works. And as we go through the book of Acts, let's watch how God works in us of people seeking to be more pleasing to Him, to walk in greater obedience to Him, not for our glory, not because of we want what we want, but for His glory, based on what He wants, understanding that that's where true joy is found. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, I, I thank You for Peter. I, I cannot wait to meet Peter one day. I just, I can't even imagine what he looks like, what he sounds like, what his personality is like, but, but man, what an awesome guy. Well, how, how cool to meet this, to hear the stories from this guy uh, of how he went from the, the fisherman with a hot temper and, and easily scared and, and denying you to this bold man of the faith who understood his weakness and walked in greater obedience to you. But God, what I look most forward to is not hearing from Peter, but dwelling with you. The fact that I get to hear Peter's story with you there. And that you're the one who's glorified through it. That maybe even I might tell a story to Peter that he can rejoice over because you are glorified. And oh, the stories we will hear in heaven. But God, the, the day we see you face to face, the day we see the joy you have with us, the love you have for us, Oh God, I pray that we would understand that more fully now so we don't waste life on this side. So that we might live and understand the love you have for all people and the responsibility you have entrusted to us to go out and reveal to all people your incredible love for them. God, I just thank you so much that you revealed yourself in a way that we could use our minds to examine. This is not wishful thinking. This is not a mindless hope. This is a certainty. It is the most certain thing in the world that you became a man who dwelt among us, that Jesus is the Christ who died for all and rose from the dead. 
We thank you, God, for the fact that you are not a reactionary deity, but you are fully in control of all things and know all things, and nothing happens outside of your perfect will. And we find comfort in that, knowing that you will care for us perfectly because you can care for us perfectly. And God, we thank you for what you have entrusted to us in eternal life, the future that awaits us, the present reality that we have. And I pray we would understand it more fully and understand the joy that comes from offering that gift to others who might believe. God, I pray you would grow us in our love for you as we understand your love for us. In Jesus' holy name, I pray all these things. Amen.